We are going to finish chapter, we're going to do chapter 9 tonight. And what it finishes is this little section in chapter 8 and 9 where Paul is talking about this offering for the Jerusalem church. And then he gets, really in chapter 9, he gets into some of the principles of giving, which are different than the Old Testament. The Old Testament just was straight percentages. The New Testament is not quite like that. So we'll review that. And then we will get into some of chapter 10. The first, I'm hoping the first six verses of chapter 10. But what happens with chapter 10 is he changes his tone because he gets a bad report. And I wish we could do it all in one night, but there's no way. It would take us three hours. But from 10 to like the end of 12 is, is all about him... Uh, Paul having his defense for these interlopers who have come into the church at Corinth to accuse Paul and his guys of wrongdoing and all this stuff. We'll get in all into that. Unfortunately, it's going to be all split up, especially since we're not going to meet for the next two weeks either. It's going to be all split up, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to do a good job of reviewing uh, when we get there. By the way, in case you're wondering, this, I want to just set this up because we're going to get into this idea of, of giving or tithing or you know, whatever it is that you might call it, to the church. Um, remember that in the Old Testament, they talk about the tithe. That tithe means a tenth. So you have to tithe. And in the Old Testament, you didn't just tithe on your income. You tithed on your crops. You tithed on, you know, if somebody gave you a bag of cinnamon, you had to take a tenth of the cinnamon out and give it to the temple. And it was very strange. But also, uh, it wasn't just 10%. There were these additional temple taxes that depending on how you do the math, added up to 26 to 28% of your income. So a lot of people think tithe, 10%, that's a lot. Uh, for the Old Testament, it was just the beginning. <laughs> that was the bare minimum that you were doing in the Old Testament. It was 26 to 28% for a devout, pious Jew. Anyway, it's very different in the New Testament, and I hope you see that uh, tonight. So uh, Paul... <clears throat> uh, gets into this offering in, in chapter um, in chapter uh, 8, says you need to live up to your commitment, and then he starts talking about how he's going to send some guys there to organize their giving, and that's fine and dandy. Um, and then, he, and then, he, and then he, uh, he's done with that, and now getting into chapter 9, this is where... Um, this is where he starts to give more general principles about, uh, about giving. So 9, 1 through 5. Now it is superfluous for me. Ridiculous is another way of saying that word. It's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boasted about you to the people of Macedonia saying that Achaia had, has uh, been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So he's using the Corinthian church a year ago and their excitement about this giving to the Jerusalem church to stir up the other churches, to encourage them, to egg them uh, on. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated. To say nothing of you, 
for being so confident. That's a typical Paul rhetorical device. I'm going to be humiliated, but you're going to be even more humiliated. <laughs> okay. Um, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready and, uh, as a willing gift and not an extraction. Not an extraction. So, chapters 8 and 9 go together. They're about the collection for Jerusalem. So Paul continues. He comes back to start working this giving angle. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul says it's ridiculous for him to go on and on about how enthusiastic they originally were about the collection for Jerusalem. And the reason is because uh, the evidence shows that they're Uh, uh, enthusiasm stirred up the other churches and if you don't come through it's going to be humiliating to everybody your hubris is going to prove that you were not up to the task and that's a problem how many of you have ever bragged about something and then you didn't come through anybody okay so I'm the only one that's ever happened to okay all right it's it's not a great feeling well he's pointing that out to them so then in verses 3 to 5, he says, I'm sending uh, some guys to help you get organized. You need to systematically prepare in advance for this gift so that you're ready to give rather than it feeling like somebody's coming to extract it from you. So again, how, how, how do you feel about being uh, compelled by guilt to give? That's not a great feeling, is it? So he's saying, I don't want you to feel like that. I want you to give because you have a generous heart. I don't want you to give under compulsion, and he gets into that in the next few uh, verses. And so that's when he moves into his teaching about generosity. Let me read 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided to give in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. So rather than going necessarily verse by verse in this chapter, uh, I'd like to sum up Paul's teaching about giving with more of a bullet list. And there's 10 items here, okay? If this were Sunday morning, I'd have a slide of the 10 items, but I don't have, that's not gonna happen this morning. Say, here's the first one. Don't expect a return on investment if you haven't invested anything. He starts with that. You reap what you sow. So he says the same thing in in Galatians chapter 6, if you've read Galatians. Okay? So let me give you some examples of that, just some real-world examples of that. 
Uh, some of you know, others of you don't. So those of you who know, just take a nap and I'll be with you, back with you in a minute. But those of you that don't know, uh, for the last 36 years, I've been part of something called the Executive Association of Greater Phoenix. It's, a, it's an in-person uh, leads and networking, leads exchange and networking association in the marketplace of business people, business owners and CEOs. And you may be wondering, well, how did you get in there? Well, back when I was in the market, uh, in the marketplace, I was the CEO of a chain of women's clothing stores. And so I got in under the category of women's apparel retail stores. Uh, you can only have one company from any category of businesses. So there's one law firm, one CPA firm, uh, you know, one car dealership, Sanderson Ford is the one that's in there. And there's about 100 of these businesses, businesses in there, and each business has at least one member uh, one representative, a couple of the businesses have two. You can have an associate member if you pay the additional dues. So I've been in that for 36 years. Um, after, we, after the company was sold in 1994, I became an honorary member. Okay, so an honorary member is a nice way of saying you, you're retired. So I was 34 years old. I'm the youngest honorary member in the history of this association, okay, at 34 years old. Um, I went back to school. And then, you know, I, be, I became a pastor, and, and I finally went to them, and I said, you know, I'm an honorary member. It means I don't have to pay any dues. I just have to pay for my breakfast. I don't have to pay any dues. But I'm really operating as an active member because I come every week, and I, I'm, you know, I'm involved in all that stuff. And, uh, and I'm really benefiting from being in this association. And I said, so would you like me to apply as an active member? And and they went to the, the membership committee and the board of directors got together for three months they pondered this and they finally came back and they said uh, we've never had a category for churches or whatever and I said we'll make the category postmodern spirituality then it's really nebulous <laughs> you know uh, and they said uh, we, we, we think we'd be opening up a Pandora's box if we had a category for faith or religion or churches or whatever and we know you and we trust you. You're not taking advantage of this. And so you can just be an honorary member. So I'm, I've been an honorary member since 1994. I go every week. I love this place. It's, it's the only thing I've done in my life longer than being married to Jackie, believe it or not. I went in as a single person. Um, anyway, it's great. And, and I, I would love to be able to list all the incredible benefits that I've gotten out of being a part of this association. Uh, when I call the partner at... Um, it's not selling, selling uh, Jennings, Strauss, and Salmon. When I call Jack Sestak, who's a full partner over there, I don't have to talk to his secretary or his legal assistant or anybody. I get him on the phone right away, and he takes my call. That's one of the advantages. If our air conditioning goes out, when I call Donley, okay, I'm first in line. And that's, that means something in Phoenix in, January, in uh, July, okay? I go, I go right to the front of the line, all of this stuff. Um, if you're familiar with the restaurant Lamore up at 32nd Street in Lincoln, they've been in this for 20 years. Uh, I, I can call over there and ask Greg for a, uh, a table, and no matter how jammed up they are, I can get right in. It's great. Anyway, a lot of advantages uh, and everything. So all of that to say, here's what I've also observed over the 36 years of being in that association. A new member will come in, a new company and a new representative, okay? Uh, the new representative will come once or twice a month, not every week. They'll show up 15 minutes late. They'll get up and leave five or 10 minutes before the, um, the program is over. 
They won't ever interact with anybody. They'll never visit anybody's businesses. They'll never ask anybody out for coffee. And then after nine months or a year, they'll come and they'll say, I'm not getting anything out of this. And they're mad at us, and they leave. You see the problem there? You, you get it, right? They didn't put anything into it, and yet they're expecting to get all this out. You have to actually put something. Uh, so the program starts every morning at 7.25. I'm there by 7 every Thursday morning because standing around just talking to people before you get your breakfast is where the real value in this thing is. You know, when, we, um, when I became pastor of Redemption Arcadia and we sold our house at 19th Avenue in Thunderbird and moved down to 16th Street and uh, Bethany Home, uh, we had our real estate agent, the uh, mortgage company, and the title company were all in Egypt, okay? Check this out. It was easier to sell our house and buy a new house, doing it that way, than it was to buy a washing machine. <laughs> That's how easy that transaction was. And uh, the real estate agent got us $30,000 more on our old house than I thought it was worth. I mean, there you go right there. There's all your dues for over the years, you know. So, but, you know, I knew these people. By the way, the mortgage guy comes to Redemption Arcadia. But they, they, you know these people, and so they're re really willing to uh, work with you. So let's talk about how that applies to church. People who come to church once or twice a month show up late leave immediately after communion. They never serve. They never get into a community. They never ask anyone out for coffee. They never participate in anything. And then they complain that the church didn't meet their needs. Happens all the time. Okay? So Paul is saying, you reap what you sow. Okay? Really important. Uh, you know, if you put nothing into marriage and expect to get a bunch out of it. There's, there it is again. Um, here you go. I'll just go ahead and read this section if I can find it. I think it's in the New Testament. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. Oh, it's like the next, it's like the next letter. Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Sorry, that's Ephesians. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Do not be deceived. Okay, now, interesting thing about the, that Greek verb there. It says, do not be deceived. Uh, the verb is in the first person personal. Okay? In other words, the proper translation there would be what? Do not deceive yourself. So, who's the easiest person in the world to deceive? I find it's Jackie. No, it's not. It's me. <laughs> I'm the easiest person in the world for me to deceive. All of us. The easiest person to deceive is ourselves, okay? So, Paul says, do not deceive yourself. God is not mocked. Forever, for whatever one sows, that also he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but to the one who sows of the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, uh, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So Paul is all about this reaping and sowing principle. It's a very important principle. Here's number two. Uh, giving under compulsion makes no one happy, not even God. If you're giving under a compulsion or under guilt, uh, God's not even happy with that. Well, I did my duty for God. And he's like, 
no big deal. So what? Okay? God loves a cheerful giver. Giving to God's work is way more about attitude than ability. Jesus even taught about that when, you know, the woman who gave one penny, he said she's more blessed than any of these people who are giving a lot of money. Okay? Uh, Three, allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. This is kind of the difference between the Old Testament giving and the New Testament giving. Okay? Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you and don't be afraid when he calls you to something bigger than what you think you are capable of. So I have a personal experience and story about that as well. When I first became a Christian at North Phoenix Baptist Church uh, in 1987, I was making $40,000 a year in 1987. So that was like a little bit, well, anyway, you get the idea, okay. Uh, Gum was like 10 cents a pack at the time, (laughs) okay. Um, So I started going there and, and, Every other week, I was writing a check for $10, and I thought, wow, I'm really, I'm really sacrificing and giving them, you know. Um, And then um, Richard Jackson, uh, the pastor at the time, got up, and he preached a message one day, and he said, you know, for those of you who aren't giving, I I, I just, I have a challenge for you. He says, I know everybody talks about 10%. He said, but here's what I want you to do. I just want you to try to, it's called try to, try 2% of your income. Just try 2% of your income. Just try to and see what happens. See if God doesn't honor that. See if you don't feel good about that. You know, just try that. So I was like, all right. So I started figuring very carefully what 2% of my weekly earnings were. And then I'm like, well, is that before taxes or after taxes? (laughs) And literally, I'm thinking about that. I'm going, you know, God is anti-tax. I know he is. (laughs) So it's after taxes, you know. So then uh, I'm praying about it, and, and I felt convicted that I really needed to start giving 10%. Because I still hadn't figured out the difference between Old Testament and New Testament. Okay? But I felt really convicted that I needed to start giving 10%. But it was 10% after taxes. Okay? And then it was about six months later, I got convicted about the idea that it's really before taxes. Okay? Then, about a year later, I got convicted that it wasn't about a duty. It wasn't about a percentage. It was between the Holy Spirit and me. I started praying with Jackie. By, the, by that time, we were married. I started praying with Jackie about what we should be giving and everything, and I said, why don't we just let the Spirit guide us in what we're giving? Here's what's interesting. Uh, At the end of that year when I was giving 10%, uh, we did our taxes, and my charitable deduction was actually 10% of our income, okay? When I just relied on the Holy Spirit, the first year we did that, it was 17% of our income, and we felt it less. We felt it less. Now, Here's what I'm saying. That's my story. That's not your story. You have to figure out your own story. Here's what Paul is saying. This really is between you and the Holy Spirit. And this is Paul, a guy who was steeped in the Mosaic Law and knew these these percentages and knew these tithe laws and everything down to the nth degree. And he's saying, this is between you and the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to have to answer for what your giving record is. You and the Holy Spirit are going to figure that out. And, and just trust the Holy Spirit in the midst of that. You know, there's some people that I've actually counseled in the church. You probably should be thinking about giving less during this particular season in your life. Because there are other things going on in your life right now. 
You see how that works? Okay? And I think there's great freedom in that. And there's great freedom for when you say, okay, I can actually give more now, and it's not out of compulsion. It's because I feel God's favor now. You know? So, number four. It's all God's in the first place, so don't be so possessive. That's verses 8 through 10. Our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, used to say this. The proper question is not how much of my money do I give to God, but rather how much of God's money should I keep? But that's between you and the Holy Spirit. But that's the proper question. Okay? Number five. You will enjoy the benefits of giving well in many aspects of your life, not just financially. That's verse 11. Number six, an orientation of thanksgiving and gratitude is necessary to give well. If you're not a a thankful person, if you're not a person who lives in gratitude and joy, you're probably not going to give well. That's verses 11 and 12. Uh, Verse 13, by giving generously, other people will see God at work. You ever wonder how people see God at work? Often uh, they see him at work through those that he is called to serve. I think I mentioned this uh, last Sunday that I preached, um, uh, that some, for some people, you will be the only Bible that they ever read. Number eight, verse 13, giving is evidence that the gospel is at work in your life. Number nine, this is verse 14, when we serve others, either by giving or through other ministry, one result is often a sense of community, family, and reciprocal prayer. And then number 10, verse 15, God is behind it all. He's behind it all. Uh, I'm going to mention this uh, Sunday. I'm going to mention it more tonight. When we take the focus on off of us and put it on God, then things really can start to happen. So while tithing is a law-bound activity in the Old Testament, Paul shows us in the New Testament that that it is a ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it's between you and the Holy Spirit. And there's both freedom and responsibility in that. I'm big on the freedom side. I like freedom. But I also recognize there's a responsibility there. So you don't take advantage of the freedom by ignoring the Holy Spirit. But also don't sabotage your blessings by feeling that you're under compulsion. You can sabotage the blessing of giving if you, feel, if you do it out of guilt and under compulsion. I tell, this is maybe a terrible analogy, but... Um, I teach this uh, ministerial communication class at GCU. So it's a combination of, uh, of uh, human communication theory, public speaking, and um, homiletics, sermon. They, the big thing at the end of the semester is they have to preach a sermon, every student. So we're doing that uh, the last week and this week. This week's the last week of class. And one of the things that I tell the students is you have to make eye contact with, with your audience because you have to be able to connect with them. And, and, you know, so many of these students, they've never done anything like this before, so they're up there just reading a manuscript. So why are you reading a manuscript? Well, I don't want to make a mistake. I want to make sure I get it right. Okay, I understand that, but here's the deal. I think it's more important for you to connect with the audience and maybe say something not quite right than it is for you to make, make sure you say it quite right, but nobody's listening because you haven't connected with them. It's the same thing with giving. Don't, don't sabotage your giving by giving under compulsion. If you really feel like God's not calling you to give right now, take a season. Now, that season I don't think is ever going to last with people. When, when God does call you to give, that's when you need to respond and do so in joy 
and, and cheerfully. So pretty wild stuff, right? <laughs> any questions or comments about any of that? I know it's a giving thing, so if there's any questions about that. No? All right, so Paul now receives some news that quite honestly irritates the snot right out of him. He has no snot left in his head after he receives this news. And Paul throws down, that's metaphor. And Paul throws down. He throws down. He, he starts fairly calm, but you'll see over the weeks that we look at this that he starts working himself into quite the tiff. Okay, so let me read verses one through six. That's as far as we'll go tonight, but there's a lot in there. And I want to make sure I set it all up well. So he writes, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, exclamation point, by the way, there was no exclamation point in the original Greek. The translators put that in there because they understand that what Paul is doing there is called sarcasm. Now, I'm sure with me as your pastor, you've never experienced any sarcasm whatsoever. That was just sarcasm, by the way. Okay. He says, I beg you, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not, be, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Wow. Okay, what's going on there? So, I mentioned this a few times at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians. Some uh, think that this may be the beginning of a new letter to the church in Corinth, a brand new letter, that there was time between the end of chapter 9 and beginning of chapter 10, uh, and, and it's a whole different letter. So it would be, if you, if you add up all the different letters that Paul supposedly wrote to Corinth, we only have two of them, 1 and 2 Corinthians, but some people call this 4 Corinthians. Uh, these chapters uh, 10 through 13. Um, I've thought a lot about this, not that it's that important, but I've thought a lot about this, and I've determined that I don't, th I, don't, I don't buy into that theory that it's a separate letter. And the reason is because that would be a really abrupt ending at the end of 9 for a letter to end, and then there's really no introduction in, into a new letter in 10. So I, the, the other theory is that as he's writing 2 Corinthians, and he gets to the end of chapter 9, somebody else, he's, he's, he's received a good report from Titus, right? But then somebody else comes right on the heels of Titus and says, hey, boss, we got trouble in Corinth. There are these outsiders, these interlopers, uh, these bad characters who are going in, and they're trying to take over the church. And part of the way they're doing that is they're trash-talking you and all your guys. They're trash-talking Titus. They're trash-talking Silas. Luke, anybody who's associated with you, that they're kind of throwing you under the bus. That's part of their uh, methodology. And they're making all sorts of accusations against you. And as, you, as we walk through these chapters, you're going to see one accusation after another that Paul deals with. 
So we're going to deal with one tonight, I think, one tonight, but there's several more that we're going to look at over the weeks. So the bad report involves arrogant guys showing up in Corinth to teach, and part of their, their curriculum is to throw Paul under the bus. They tell the Corinthians of Paul's supposed flots, faults and tell the Corinthians that they need to quit listening to Paul. Don't listen to him anymore. So who exactly are these arrogant guys? Some people call them interlopers. Have you ever heard the term carpetbagger? So they're like, they're like, a, they're like a, 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 an ancient version of a carpetbagger, okay? So Paul, in chapter 11, when we get there, he sarcastically refers to them as super apostles. Now, he's being sarcastic, okay? Because these guys have built them up as better, better apostles, better, better suppositories. They're better apostles. <laughs> They're, sorry about that. They're better apostles than Paul. So Paul's like, oh, you're super apostles then. Because if you remember, Paul is, had to argue with the Corinthians earlier that he's a, he's a real apostle of Christ. I, I saw the resurrected Jesus. I know him. Okay. So he sarcastically re refers to them as that. Now, why do they think they're better? Well, it's an age-old argument in the church. This has been going on since the beginning of the church, and it still goes on today. In this case, these guys that come in are Jewish Christians, ethnically, and their faith background is that they are Jewish. So they're even maybe ex-Pharisees, just like Paul, but they don't get grace, okay? So they're Jewish Christians who believe that salvation not only involves Jesus on the cross, but also in order to be saved, you, you need Jesus, but you also still have to keep the Mosaic law, which also means you have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You follow that? So they're saying there's actually two conversions for a Gentile. Most of the people in Corinth were Gentiles. So there's actually two conversions that the people in Corinth have to go through. They have to come to Christ and become a Christian, but they also have to, they have to um, uh, become Jewish by embracing the Mosaic law and keeping the Mosaic law. So I don't understand how grace and keeping the law work together because grace is unmerited favor. You don't do anything to earn grace. You just receive it as a gift. But they're saying, no, it also means you have to keep the Mosaic law. So in other words, it's a false gospel. Here's, here's what it is. It's a false gospel that's known as Jesus plus. Anytime you hear somebody teaching that salvation is Jesus plus anything else, you should turn the other way and run, okay? I've told this story before. The second year I was at the camp in Iowa <clears throat> teaching there. This is going back now 24, 25 years. Um, there was a lady there who determined that she was going to follow me around for most of the camp, uh, explaining to me that you can't be saved unless you've been baptized, that baptism is salvific. You, you may know who Jesus is, but you're really not saved. You won't get into heaven until you've been baptized. And, and I mean, I just, I'm like, baptism is not salvific. That's a work, number one. And number two, that means Jesus lied to the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. I don't remember any of the Gospels talking about how they all got off the cross and they went down to a river and they baptized them and then they got back on the cross, okay? Uh, well, she wasn't having any of it. Finally, on Thursday, I just looked at her and said, listen, you know, I am here to pastor this camp, but I'm also here to be with my family and, and relax and have fun, so don't talk to me anymore. <laughs> I just, that's like, 
that might be why I got a bad review that year. Anyway, um, so that's a, but that's a false gospel. Any Jesus plus. Read the book of Galatians. Paul writes the Galatians. He's angry at the Galatians. Not like you guys are terrible, but he's angry at them because they're listening to uh, people who are saying, oh yeah, it's Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. Same thing. False gospel. Okay. He had to battle this false teaching and bad theology his entire ministry. And this still happens today. People will come into the church and say, well, this or that. You're not really saved unless this. And this has to be part of your salvation formula. Okay. So Paul calls them facetiously super apostles because they claim to be apostles of a higher order. They understand that you have to still keep the Mosaic law. But in reality, they're false apostles. Now, what is the appeal to this? This idea that Jesus is not enough. Why does that appeal to us or to so many people? Okay, this idea of Jesus plus permeates so much of the church world. I would argue that it's this, it's this reason, and it's really very simple. People hate the idea that they are not a part of their own salvation. They don't like thinking that they don't have anything to do with their salvation. They feel it robs them of, of identity and self-therapy. You know, if I can't save myself or at least participate in my salvation in a way that makes much of me, then there must be something wrong with that salvation. Grace is not sufficient no matter what Jesus or the Bible says. That's another problem is it's not even biblical. So Paul, now in an ethos and an attitude of some agitation, he defends himself against all the accusations of these so-called super apostles, these interlopers. He spends chapter 10 beginning his defense and sort of cranking up, bubbling up to what we might call the crescendo. The climax of his defense, which comes sometime later, it starts in chapter 11, verse This is where he really gets riled up. It starts in chapter 11, verse 16, and goes all the way through chapter 12, verse 13. And he goes after it. He doesn't leave anything out. He leaves no accusation unanswered. Here's how one scholar, uh, Colin Cruz, describes what happens here in this text. It's a long quote, but I think this summarizes it well. He writes that there is a marked change in Paul's tone when he moves from chapters 1, to, 1 through 9 to chapters 10 through 13. In the former, in chapters 1 through 9, the tone is basically that of relief and comfort. It's of confidence in God and in the Corinthians, despite the fact that Paul felt that he, needed, he still needed to explain the change in his travel plans and to stress the integrity of his ministry. But the tone of the latter chapters, 10 through 13, is marked by satire and irony. It's marked by a spirited personal defense. It's marked by reproach against the Corinthians for being so easily cowed or convinced by the intruders. And it's marked by his quite bitter attack leveled at these opponents who have infiltrated the Corinthian congregation. So what does Paul say in these six verses? What does he start with? He starts in verse 1 with an appeal to the idea that he is going to do his best to defend himself with meekness and humility. That's the first clause, the first part of the first sentence, the first part of the first verse. He says, I'm going to defend myself in Christ with meekness and humility. 
You know, it's not that Christians are never to defend themselves. Some people think that to be a Christian means you can never defend yourself. Okay? It's not the word to never defend ourselves. And by the way, especially against slander, which is exactly what's happening to Paul here, you should defend yourself. But it should be done with some measure of humility and gentleness. But even in that, sometimes the gloves do have to come off. And for Paul, it only takes one clause before the gloves come off. I don't know if you noticed that, but <laughs> he says, I want to defend myself in Christ, in meekness and, and gentleness and, and humility. But then he says, I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away, that is biting sarcasm. That's his way of saying, here's the first accusation against me, and it's ridiculous. It's it's, it's so far beyond the pale, I don't even know why I have to deal with it. It's the first accusation that Paul defends. These guys, these self-appointed super apostles, have claimed to the Corinthians that Paul is a coward and a bully and a hypocrite. He's one way when he's in person, but he's a completely different way when he isn't in front of them. And verse 2 expands on this, on this accusation. Verse 2, Paul, I'm paraphrasing here, but Paul says, hey, I hope I never have to come at you hard in person, but, if I, but I will if I have to. I hope I don't have to treat you harshly in person, but if I have to, I will. It just hasn't happened that way. And then he says, if you want to see boldness, though, just keep reading, because I'm going to go after these guys pretty boldly. These goofballs who are slinging these accusations at me, I'm going to go right after them. And then verse 3, yes, we are flesh. We walk in the flesh. We have no choice, but, kind of a double entendre, we will not wage war according to the flesh, he says. We walk in the flesh, but we are not going to wage war according to the flesh. In other words, we will not let our emotions dictate how we will answer these false accusations. Because in our flesh, we'd frankly like to beat the scubala out of these guys. Now, y'all know what the word scubala means, right? It's the Greek word for crap, okay? And it's in the Bible. It's in Philippians chapter 3, okay? Uh, instead, he says, God is going to reign in how we fight. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to use rhetoric. It doesn't mean I'm not going to use irony and sarcasm. I am. He even later calls it foolishness, what he does. He says, I'm going I'm I'm to talk to you now like a fool. You, when you read ahead, you'll see that he says that. I'm, I'm going to become a fool. I'm going to sort of act like people do in the world. And the reason he does that is because I'm worried that that's the only way you're really going to understand this. Okay? So he says, God reigns in how we fight. Wisdom, the Holy Spirit, and the teachings of Jesus should mediate how we approach the disciplining of falsehoods. Nevertheless, we need to take falsehoods seriously, and we need to deal with them directly. Paul has always said that. Always said that. So in verses 4 through 5, Instead, he says, we're going to fight with the integrity of the faith. And that power is stronger than our flesh anyway. So he says, we're going, to, we're going to fight by taking every thought captive to Christ. We will pray and seek God's wisdom before we fight. But fight we will. We're going to go to God, but we're going to fight. Don't think we're just going to lay down our arms. And he says, and there's going to be consequences for all this disobedience. But Paul's purpose here is not just to demolish the false teaching and false arguments, but rather to bring the thoughts of all the Corinthian Christians under the authority and lordship of Jesus. So Paul is asking again, and in fact he's insisting now, 
that the Corinthians acknowledge the authority and primacy of the true gospel. He's, he's not even necessarily arguing for his authority. He's just saying, you've lost track of the authority of the true gospel. So I'll close with this tonight. Here's a timeless and important conclusion that you and I should embrace. Christian ministry involves a battle for the mind as much as about anything else. The mind. Now, we're all about the heart in our culture today. In other words, we're all about feelings, affect, all of that. We, we, we think with our emotions. Uh, Carl Truman calls it emotional rationalism. I'm telling you, I'm going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to keep pounding away until everybody has read this book or listened to it. It's on audio. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. I read it in 2021. It was on my list of best books for 2021. I reread it this year. It's going to make the list this year, too. Okay? It's such an important book. In fact, tomorrow morning, I, so the Executives Association, I get to speak there tomorrow morning. About 15 years ago, they decided the last Thursday morning that we meet for our breakfast meetings, um, because I lead a church, they want me to do the holiday talk. They won't call it a Christmas talk. They want me to do the holiday talk, okay? And so I've done it for the last 15 years in a row. And, and I'm like, every year I'm like, how do I talk and, and not just go full, you know, like, hey, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and then he rose from the dead. They're like, you're not talking next year. So um, anyway, how do I do this? So actually what I'm going to do tomorrow is I'm going to say, here are seven books you have to read, okay? And so Deep Work is on it, and, and uh, um, Progress Paradox, uh, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, and I'm going to tell them, and it's the only Christian book, the only distinctively Christian book on the list. I'm going to say, you've got to read uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self or listen to it. By the way, the seventh book, <laughs> here's my little way I'm going to worm my way in. The seventh book is Ecclesiastes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say, you know, there's a couple books on here that you're going to look at the date and you're going to go, is that still relevant today? Well, this one's 3,000 years old. And it's probably more relevant today than any of these other books that I, I, I'm going to tell them that. And, and then I'm going to say, by the way, if anybody wants to meet with me uh, every other week for coffee to talk about this book, if you've never done something like that, I'd like to do that with you. A hundred people will be there, and I'll bet nobody will take me up on that. But I'm going to offer it anyway. Anyway, it's about the mind. It's amazing. This is one of the reasons why. See, everything always comes back. It's, it's amazing how... Um, there are so many people who don't want anything to do with the Christian faith uh, because Scripture talks a lot about minds, about transforming the mind. So let me just read this little passage to you. I'll bet you're familiar with it. Where am I going? Anybody? In the New Testament? Anybody? Come on. Here you go. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your heart. No, he does not say that. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that by testing, you may discern what, the, what is the will of God and what is acceptable and good and perfect. God wants to capture your mind. Now, your heart's important too. Your affect, your, your right brain. That's still important too. 
But Paul says, look, your mind is... Tom used to say it this way, our founding pastor, what you know trumps what you feel. Okay? Here's one other place, because I have one minute, so I get to do this. Here's one other place. Philippians chapter 1. Starting in verse 9, he writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. He says, I'm praying for you that your love may abound more and more. What does he say after that? More and more with feelings and passion and emotion. Is that what he says? No. Now, I'm not, I'm not discounting that part of the love is fun, right? Those of you who have experienced it. That part is fun. Okay, but that's not what he says. He says, I want your love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. Well, that sounds really boring. But what he's saying is that genuine love isn't about feelings. It's about commitment. It's about covenant. It's about a decision. And it's about knowing God, knowing his will, and applying wisdom to your life. That's what genuine love is. And he's, that word uh, knowledge that he uses there, with knowledge and all discernment, uh, it's almost impossible for us to adequately translate that Greek word there. Literally, it's hyper-knowledge. Like you're supposed to take your mind and go deep into understanding what gos- true gospel love is. That it's a commitment, it's a covenant, it's a decision, it's an action. All of that. You, if you were here this last Sunday, you heard uh, Trey at the end of the sermon. He gave this. He gave this great. Anybody doing it? The challenge. You know. Oh my goodness. He's right. You know. Spend the next month thinking about what other people need, not what you need, and trying to meet those needs. Just do it for a month. I'm wondering how many people got through like 45 minutes. You know. But yeah, that's, that's the kind of love that Paul is talking about here. And he says, you have to engage your mind in that kind of love. You have to engage your mind when it comes to trans, uh, transformation. So um, when we come back, it will be um, January 4th. When we come back, we're going to start in, uh, in uh, chapter 10. And uh, I'm just telling you, it's going to take us a little while to get through 10 and 11 and 12. Because there is so much there that I think is so important that I want to unpack. So we'll probably start that um, uh, spiritual gift series uh, probably the beginning or middle of February. So we'll have four or five weeks more in, in 2 Corinthians. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word and its truth. Thank you for your love and how you loved us. And it was a covenantal love, a commitment love. Um, but we also know that your love is perfect because it's not uh, corrupted by sin. And so you also love us with a deep passion and a deep zeal, and we thank you for that. And you've demonstrated that love for us in what you've done with Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. So help us to be reminded of that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.